Would you pray with me? Grant, O Lord, that I may not speak with words of plausible human wisdom, but in demonstration and power of your Holy Spirit, that our faith may not rest in the words of men, but in the power of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. One of the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to the person of Jesus is to view him simply as a good person, someone who sets a, a good example for us to follow. No doubt he was the greatest person who ever walked on the earth, but it is wrong to merely view him as a person to emulate. The reason that this is actually dangerous is because it's completely antithetical to who he was and what he came to do. He was truly one of a kind, someone utterly different from all who had come before him and all who would come after him. And it is in this sense that we must first see Jesus. Jesus' life, you see, was all about a mission that he alone could accomplish. And in our gospel reading this morning, we get a wonderful glimpse of that mission. And what I want to do this morning is to draw your attention to four things that we learn about Jesus' mission from this text. If you're a note taker, you might write these down. First, we see the strength of Jesus' resolve. Second, we see the gift that Jesus provides. Third, we see the demand that Jesus requires. And finally, we see the transformation that Jesus causes. The strength of his resolve, the gift he provides, the demand he requires, and the transformation he causes. So first, the strength of Jesus' resolve. If this encounter with the Samaritan woman teaches us anything, it is how committed Jesus was to accomplish the mission that he set out to do. We see this right at the start. At the beginning of chapter four, Jesus is leaving Judea in the south and he's heading north to Galilee. And to get there, uh, the usual route that the Jews would take would be to, to go north and then to cross the Jordan to the east, go further up and then cut across again to the west and to Galilee, obviously missing everything in the middle that was known as Samaria. And in order uh, to the reason that they would do this, it says in verse 9, that Jews and Samaritans did all that they could to avoid one another. But when it comes to Jesus, in verse 4, it says that he had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Sure, sometimes Jews would take this direct route through Samaria if they were in a hurry, but at the end of the chapter, as we heard, Jesus ends up staying there for two days. He's not in a hurry, so why does he have to go through this place that Jews would normally go 100 miles out of their way to avoid? Well, it's an indication that this encounter with this woman was no accident. It was a divine appointment. Jesus was coming for her. And so strong is his resolve to meet with this woman that he intentionally ignores three things that would have been major scandals uh, in his day. I've already mentioned the first scandal he ignores in order to meet with this woman. It's the ethnic one. The, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews disdained 
the Samaritans. They considered them half-breeds, and the disdain was reciprocated. Another major scandal that Jesus ignores is that he's talking with a woman. That was actually even more scandalous. It was bad enough to be seen with a Samaritan, but both in Jewish and Samaritan culture, a man was not supposed to even look into the eyes of a woman who was not his wife in public, much less talk with her. Any ordinary woman in this scenario, when she approaches the well, uh, any ordinary man, she would expect to move back 20 feet or so away from her. But Jesus, he doesn't move. In fact, he asks her a question. And the third scandal that Jesus ignores revolves around the kind of woman that this was. We get a clue into seeing what kind of woman she was and the details of her arrival. She comes alone, and she comes at the sixth hour. That was in the, in the middle of the day. You see, a typical woman uh, of the town would go out at the beginning and end of the day in order to avoid the scorching heat of the middle of the day. They would go out in groups to help one another load up the water and then to carry the heavy load, uh, avoiding potentially dubious encounters that might hurt one's reputation. But here comes this woman by herself in the middle of the day when all the other women of the town would go out to draw water and catch up on the town gossip, she wasn't among them because she was the object of the town gossip. She was a woman of ill repute and no one wanted to be seen with her lest they risk gaining a similar reputation. This is why Jesus' disciples were so concerned when they come back from the town. You see the resolve of Jesus here? I I love this about him. He is willing to undergo scandal by crossing these cultural boundaries, the ethnic boundary, the gender boundary, and the moral boundary so that he might fulfill his mission. He is completely unconcerned about what others think of him. His mind's not on his own reputation. It's on one thing, this woman. Why does Jesus have such resolve to meet with this woman? Well, he longs to provide her with an incredible gift. So let's look at next the gift that Jesus provides. It is remarkable the lengths that Jesus goes in order to meet with this woman. It's even more remarkable that God himself, the God of the universe, would become personally familiar with human nature. We don't have time to explore all the implications of this reality, but if you are here this morning and if you feel that maybe God uh, is distant or aloof, maybe you know that he knows what you're going through because after all he's God, but, but how could he possibly know what it feels like to go through what you're going through? Well, if you've ever asked that, look at verses six, seven, and eight with me. God, through his own son, knows what it is like to feel the pains of hunger. He knows what it is like to feel the aches of exhaustion. He knows what it is like to have chapped lips and a parched mouth. And perhaps most astonishingly, in the person of Jesus, God knows what it feels like to be powerless, to be utterly reliant on another human being. He is thirsty, and when no one else will associate with this Samaritan woman, Jesus asks, her for help. 
Give me a drink, he says. Her response reveals the scandalous nature of what Jesus is doing. But then he gets to his main point. She doesn't understand that, that he is here to give her a gift. If you knew the gift of God, he says, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now in classic John fashion, uh, there are multiple levels of meaning in this phrase, living water. The Gospel of John is full of these sort of double meanings. On the one hand, in the Middle East, living water was, was a very common phrase that simply referred to running water. Moving water of a stream or a river, that, that was far more sanitary than the contaminated, stagnant water that would sometimes be available. But just like last week with Nicodemus, Jesus wasn't speaking in a literal, physical sense. Jesus is using the image of water to convey a deep spiritual reality. Just think, why is water so important to us? Well, water's connected to our very life. A human being can go one to two months without food, but you can't go even a couple of days without water. Jesus is saying that just as your body thirsts and can't survive very long without water, so it is with our hearts, with our souls. This isn't the first instance of the phrase living water uh, that's used in the Bible. No doubt Jesus has in his mind the words of the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, my people have committed two evils, declares the Lord. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see, according to Jeremiah the prophet, God himself is the living water that our hearts crave most. But instead of finding our deepest satisfaction in him, we have looked to quench our souls in places that are unable to offer what they promise. We have gone to broken cisterns, leaky buckets for living water. But this woman, like Nicodemus in the chapter before, she takes Jesus' words in the physical sense. You can hear her skepticism and her reply, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well's deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She assumes that Jesus is talking about the water at the bottom of the well, which would likely connect to an underground stream. And since Jesus doesn't have anything to draw out the water, her uh, ironic rhetorical question shows that she thinks Jesus must be some sort of magician if he's going to somehow provide living water. But Jesus doubles down and suggests that he is, in fact, greater than Jacob. In verses 13 and 14, he says, Everyone who drinks of the water from Jacob's well will be thirsty again. But everyone who drinks, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus brings permanent satisfaction. And no one else ever comes close, not even Jacob. Not only is the gift that Jesus brings permanent, but it wells up inside of the recipient, so much so that it, it bubbles up and begins to overflow. The water that I will give him, Jesus says, will become in him a spring 
of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman still doesn't get it. All she can think about is her physical thirst. In her mind, such water would mean she would not have to make the trek out of the village to the well every day. She'd still be able to avoid all the people of the town, and she would avoid the heat of the day if he could just give her this living water. If you've ever found yourself talking past somebody, you know how frustrating this can be. She is talking about well water. Jesus is talking about her heart. And before we move on, I wonder if you are picking up on why we never catch the name of this woman. You see, there are several places in John's gospel where Jesus has significant encounters with someone, and we never learn the person's name. The reason we never get her name is because I think John is inviting us to put ourselves in the place of this woman, to see our names as her name. We are all this woman of Samaria. And I hope you can see now just how foolish it is to merely look at Jesus as an example for us to follow. The Bible's main point is to reveal this gift that Jesus comes to offer. The gift is not a set of teachings to live by or uh, rules to follow. The gift is a person. It's Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus' offer to her is the same offer that's available to you this morning. He says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and drink, he says, and you shall be satisfied forever. The strength of his resolve, the gift he provides, and thirdly, the demand that he requires. After talking past each other back and forth, Jesus moves on from talking about water, and he puts his finger right on the issue. If she is to have rivers of living water flowing out of her heart, Jesus must first perform a kind of heart surgery. His next words are like a surgeon using a scalpel to open up her heart and to lay it bare. Verse 16, Jesus says, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What the woman says to Jesus is true, but it's only part of it. And the problem with half-truths is that eventually the entire truth will come out. Telling the truth and taking full ownership of the very worst things in our lives is incredibly difficult. Because ever since the first sin in the human race, our tendency has been to hide and to cover up our shame. Friends, becoming a Christian is not for the faint of heart. The courage to name the full truth about ourselves is perhaps the scariest thing that you and I will face in this life. But my friends, as, as unyielding and daunting as this demand that Jesus gives, there are at least two things in here that should encourage us in the process of coming to grips with our past. I want you to notice two things that show us the stunningly gentle nature of Jesus for those who are willing to risk exposure. First, it was no accident that Jesus sent the disciples on into the village. 
The more I think on this passage, the more it's amazing to me that this is all orchestrated. He wanted to ensure that he would meet with this woman alone. He wanted to be alone with her, not to cause a scandal, but so that he might honor the exposure of her soul and her past, making it as easy as possible for her to come clean. He knows that she's been humiliated back in Sikar. She had been coming out every day during the middle of the day to draw water just to avoid everyone else. And when he lays her soul to bear there at the well, he is kind and gentle enough to ensure the privacy of that conversation. But secondly, I want you to notice that instead of uh, chiding her for hiding the truth fully, he actually commends her for the little bit of truth that she's able to confess before taking her the rest of the way. There is an astonishing lack of shame in what Jesus says to this woman. Yes, he's candid, but his kindness and gentleness spur her on to come clean. And come clean, you and I must. For this is the demand that Jesus makes. In order to drink of the living water that he offers, you must first bear the pain of full exposure before him. The gift of God only comes when we lay the truth about ourselves out in the open. As long as we cling to our cover-ups, we won't have empty hands to receive the gift that he offers. We must first acknowledge the broken cisterns we've dug for ourselves before we can drink the living water that Jesus provides. For this woman, the broken cistern in her life had been going back and back again and again to this issue of romance. No doubt that's a common place for many today to look for ultimate significance and satisfaction. But it's far from the only broken cistern that we can fall into. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, lists a number of ways that you and I can go to broken cisterns for what only God can provide and the devastating effects that they have on our lives. He says, if you center your life on a love partner like this Samaritan woman, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life on family and children, you'll try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. If you center your life on your work or career, you'll be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, you'll develop deep depression. If you center your life on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up with worry or jealousy. You'll be willing to do unethical things in order to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life on pleasure and comfort, you'll end up becoming addicted to something. You'll become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hard times of life. If you center your life on friends or approval, you will be constantly overhurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. If you fear confronting others, and will therefore, you will therefore be a useless friend. If you center your life on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good people and bad people and demonize your opponents, and ironically, you'll be controlled by them. Without them, you won't have purpose. 
And if you center your life on religion and morality, you end up, if you end up living up to your moral standards, you'll become proud, self-righteous, and even cruel. And if you don't live up to your standards, well, you'll be in absolute despair. Friends, let me ask you, where have you turned in search for living water this morning? The demand that Jesus makes is that we have the courage to name what we've done and to turn back to him. Well, the rest of Jesus' conversation with this woman has caused confusion for scholars for centuries. What exactly is she doing in bringing up this theological discussion in verse 20? Many suggest that Jesus has, has touched a nerve in her heart, and so she's changing the subject. What better way to avoid personal guilt than to enter theological debate? I think there's probably some of that going on but I don't think it's an accident that she ends up bringing up the concept of worship and the temple in Jerusalem. She acknowledged, yes, that Jesus was a prophet. Though she didn't still really know who exactly he was, she undeniably saw that uh, he had been used by God to do what prophets do. Prophets tell the truth and they expose sin. And what do we need to do when our sin is revealed? We need to have a way for it to be pardoned and washed away. When a prophet exposes sin, it is only natural then to look for a priest who can atone for that sin. You see, Jesus' prophetic exposure of this woman leads naturally into her need for a priest, for a temple, for worship. For the Samaritans, who only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, they believed that temple was in Mount Gerizim, which was overshadowing even this well where they had the conversation. But the Jews, who held to the entire Old Testament, they believed that God had told Solomon to build the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And Jesus' answer is remarkable. It both gets to her heart and answers the theological question. He says, in essence... Mount Gerizim, Samaria, and Mount Jerusalem, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, they're both obsolete. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And you can almost hear the sigh in the woman in verse 25 when she says, I know Messiah is coming who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And every preacher can be relieved to know that even Jesus confused people when he preached. This poor woman was thoroughly confused and resigned herself to admit that the only thing that she knew, which was that the Messiah would come and he would make all things right. And that brings us to the fourth and final point. The transformation that Jesus causes. You see, up to this point, the entire conversation between Jesus and this woman seemed to be an exercise in futility. They were just talking past one another. Until verse 26. That's where everything changes for this woman. It's the climax of the story. Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. But Archbishop William Temple suggests there's something more going on here. The literal translation of, of verse 26 says something like this. I that speak to you, I am. I am. That's a weird way of phrasing that. Throughout John's gospel, there are a number of 
times that weird phrasing comes up. In John 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And then the religious leaders who heard it picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. And in John 18, when Jesus is being arrested, the leaders come out with soldiers, and Jesus asks, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And all he does next is say, I am. And they fall back and fall to the ground. Now what in the world is happening when he says, I am? Here's what's happening. Jesus is revealing himself, not just as the Messiah, but as God in the flesh. He uses the divine name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. I am who I am. Jesus is God, the great I am, who has taken on the flesh and come to his people. And the woman finally understands what Jesus meant in saying that both Mount Gerizim and Mount Zion are now obsolete. Jesus was saying, both places are obsolete because I am here. I am the fulfillment of the temple, for I'm the very manifestation of God's presence. The word became flesh and tabernacled, templed among us. I am the fulfillment of the sacrifice because my blood is not the blood of bulls and goats. My blood forgives sins once for all because I am the perfect man who has suffered for the sins of the world. I am the fulfillment of the priest who voluntarily lays down his life only to take it up again and ascend into heaven so I can intercede before the Father in the throne on your behalf forever. If you want to know where to go with your sin, don't go to the temple, come to me. That's what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. And when the woman finds this out, it changes everything. She runs back to the very people she has been avoiding in order to tell them the very thing she was seeking to cover up. She leaves behind her water jar because now she has a spring of living water bubbling up out of her. All her past, which once caused so much shame in her life, is now transformed to be a part of the testimony that the town will now come out and believe in Jesus' name because of it. She is utterly transformed. My friends, this was the mission that he was resolved to accomplish. It, he requires that we have the courage to come on out of hiding, to name the broken cisterns that we have looked to in our hearts, and to return to him. And when we do, in that instant, he gives us the gift of himself, the kind of abundant satisfaction that we've always been longing for. This is what Jesus came to do with this Samaritan woman, and it's what he's been doing ever since. It's what he wants to do with you today. Come to the waters, you who thirst, and drink deeply of the unending waters of Jesus Christ, the lover of your soul, who pursues his faithless bride to redeem her and make her lovely. In Jesus' name, amen.